Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Ampuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, October 17th, right. 2021. Uh, happy anniversary. Yes, it was our anniversary just the day before. And happy anniversary to you, Ms. Granger. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Thank you. It was an exhausting day to no, celebrate. We're, we're, we're in we the, had a yard sale. Yes, we're, we're recovering. We, we chose to mark our anniversary uh, inadvertently uh, by having a yard sale, a garage sale, a liquidation sale, an estate sale. I don't know what you'd call it. We sold everything in our house. No, well, we tried no, to. No, 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 we no. tried to. We tried to sell everything in our house. And it turns out, uh, we not, put a price on everything in the we, house. We put a price on everything in the house. Turns out that uh, some of the stuff is priceless or uh, demandless. Or, uh, not people. People don't want to buy it. So we saw we made a dent in our belongings as part of our Swedish death cleanse. But uh, dent is uh, you know not complete. There's a lot of stuff left, and uh, we're kind of everything processed. must go. Every. <laughs> Make your offers it's, now. It's still here, so I can't say everything must go. But it, number one, it was exhausting. Uh, and, you know, of course, we got some financial return from it. But, what you know, it's like it reminded me of the old days when you had the food business. And, you know, on Cranberry Day, which is the day a lot of people visit the town, uh, you know, people would come by and stop by your food shop and usually just get a brownie and or a cup of coffee. And you would, you know... Have uh, you'd make four hundred dollars on four hundred transactions of a dollar each, and you'd be exhausted. Uh, and it was a little bit like that, right? Um, talking right. to people and making small transactions, but the it wasn't about the money. It was about well, it's almost like we're finding homes for all these objects as much as anything. You know, we don't expect to make. It was a very social thing. It's very social, which is positive. We saw a lot of people. We, we saw talked a lot, of, to a lot of people. That's right. We met people. Yes. And so on and so forth. Yes. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, verbal tipping. A lot of people, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. If I had room in my house for this, if only I had room in my house. for. So we certainly come away with it, from it with an understanding that people's houses are filled to the brim, uh, at least in this area of the country in the Northeast, which might be true. I, I've actually heard that the areas where you, you have tremendous markets for things like used furniture or antique furniture or often areas which are newly developed or by uh, army bases or something like that, where people are transplanting themselves and trying to fill the place up with furniture. Uh, this is the, whatever the reverse of that is, whatever the bizarro <laughs> world of that is, that's the world in which we live. And people just look over stuff and sigh and love it. And they say, if only I could take this home. So there, it wasn't about negotiating price. It was about uh, trying to convince people or, or not even trying to convince people, but seeing if people could come to uh, some comfort level that they could fit in their house. And sometimes they could, and often they couldn't. So we have uh, we have a little more work to do. Uh, but it was very the, cathartic. Yeah, it was cathartic to some Go, degree. Going, being, preparing ourselves to get rid of everything. Oh, right, right. You know? In it, a surprising way. It, and when it is gone, we'll yeah. feel much better. Oh, and, and I'll, so I'll, I'll use myself an example. I won't put you on the line. This is me. Yeah, after all, it was our anniversary. I can do the gallant thing. Uh, so at the very end, the guy says to me, gee, the, the stereo equipment, none of it's for sale? I said, well, talk to me. And he said, you know, I'd like to buy your turntable. And then I said, well, let's talk about that. And then I said, you know, I have an old receiver. I can't get to work, but I know it's quite good. It's quite valuable because it has tubes rather than transistors. And it's a little bit of a collector's piece and blah, blah. We get a new conversation. And I let it go. I end up selling it for very low price, but just because... 
I, I can't use the receiver, honestly. Well, it doesn't work. You doesn't haven't work. used it. And, and the turntable, you know, an old turntable with a needle kind of shot and, and the tension kind of constantly in need of adjustment is just no fun. And I haven't... When was the last time we used the turntable? 20 years ago? So these are things... No, no, no. I I was playing... Right. But te- it's just the a Monte Verde. Just to test a couple it. Weeks. No, we, no. It was on there because oh, yeah. I was playing Oh, is that right? It. You should yes, have told me. I, wouldn't I, had, have, I or, wouldn't have sold it. <laughs> No, but well, if we get a better one, that would be nice. We'll get a better one. But 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 what I'm really getting at is, generally speaking, we haven't been using it for 25 years. Right. So you've got two items that haven't we haven't touched, pretty much haven't touched. Certainly, in this case of the receiver. No, it's not 25 years. Tw- right? Don't 20 go years? crazy. Well, how, what do you think it is? I just get to your point of your story. My point is, okay? there's nothing. It's the perfect. It's the poster child for the kind of thing that you should part with in this kind of sale. You know, we can't use it. Maybe somebody else can use it. And even then, 10 minutes after the transaction, I'm saying to myself, oh, gee, should I let that go? That could be very useful, which is insane, which is an insane reaction, which is not a logical reaction from me, who's a very logical person. So it shows that even I am affected by whatever the phenomenon is. You have hoarder tendencies. I have hoarder tendencies. We have to nip them in the bud. Yes. As long as there's no pain involved. All right, moving right along. This is the week uh, we say happy birthday to Noel. Jane Borg. Well, Jane Borg. Mother of the famous Pepper. Mother of famous Pepper Jane Borg. And long-suffering wife of the famous Zeke. The famous Zeke. The infamous Zeke. The infamous Zeke. Yes. Uh, So happy birthday, Noel. Hope it's a good day. Oh, you know, with Pepper at your side, happen to be a bad day. That's true. I just hope uh, Pepper lets you have cake. I I know that when there's cake around, uh, Pepper... Goes right no, no, no. You know what? Hands. Maybe right. Zeke will ma- bake a cake. Yeah. And they'll give Pepper a slice. Yeah. And she'll stare at it and say, you know, usually I get my own whole cake. And I'd smash my face in it. Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, let's see. It's hard to know what Pepper's thinking. She's uh, not telling us. Uh, she's telling us something, but we don't know what she's saying, honestly. All right. Um, so there was a, you know, an article here that kind of struck me. And even though it was prominently placed in Times, I haven't heard too much about it. Uh, otherwise, and maybe it's a bigger story than I realized. To me, it's very interesting. And that is that the FDA has approved several e-cigarettes. Um, and so I, you know, even though I'm a lawyer, it's confusing to me as to what that means and what that doesn't mean. Right. Did you figure that out? I I sort of did. Okay. Um, so first of all, the idea of what I didn't understand it because they seem to be. when I say been selling them. Yeah, they have been. So, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. So, look, it is confusing. It's confusing to me, and part of it's the fault of the federal government. Because during the Obama administration, they sort of muddied the waters as to whether the FDA has any kind of jurisdiction over e-cigarettes to begin with, whether they have any role with respect to them, because they're not technically tobacco products. Uh, in 2016, this would have been in the middle of that administration, they finally decided that uh, the FDA would have a role with respect to e-cigarettes. And what the FDA does, uh, you know, I realize from experience, is it's not a matter of the FDA says you can sell or you can't sell. Often what FDA FDA is doing, Food and Drug Administration, has to do with labeling and whether things can be used for a particular purpose. And the FDA approved these cigarettes as appropriate for their health benefits. So you can now sell these particular brands. And by the way, they were negative on some other brands. On these particular brands can now be sold as health items, uh, anti-smoking aids. So in the sense that they're not as bad for you as... More than in the sense, to be quite precise, 
on the logic that, in fact, uh, they're beneficial to the health of people who are smokers because it diminishes their appetite for smoking cigarettes, which are lethal, uh, and these are not lethal, and to the extent that they have negative health effects. Well, does it really diminish their appetite or just give them an alternative? Oh, it's the same thing, okay? It gives them an alternative. So, um, and, and UK, what came to your mind is you said, well, wait a minute, I thought there was all this stuff about vaping and harmful, and is, aren't these cigarettes themselves lethal? Uh, so I was looking for that, and the answers. Did you find your own answer yes. to that? What did you get? Well, there was uh, an issue with uh, a um, disease or syndrome called EVAL. E V A L. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, is refers to cigarette slash vaping related lung disease that was happening a couple years ago, but that has to do with vitamin E acetate, an additive in THC. Right. So that's sort of, so that's for... Sounds like marijuana. Actually. Yes. Yeah, right. All right. So, yeah. so that's that kind right. of, it's not um, right. Right. the so, same as, I guess, the... Yeah, I, I can tell, I, I found something similar to that. Did you do yeah. have more? Or no, that? I don't have more. Well, it's just, uh, it, it seems... There's the, the vitamin E in... Yeah. Because of the THC, right. makes people incredibly ill. <laughs> yeah, so it seemed that what was going on, there are two things. Number one is that I think what was grabbing the headlines, you had a headline saying vaping deaths. But uh, I th- what people were, ad- were using certain additives and adding things, including THC, to the standard uh, e-cigarettes uh, and using them in a way that really wasn't uh, anticipated or at least described in the product itself. And that was uh, considered primarily responsible for the serious health problems they had. There, that, which is not to say, and this is point two, that everyone is completely satisfied and comfortable that, that there are no negative health effects of vaping, even if the e-cigarette is used properly. But uh, what you read is a lot of saying, you know, uh, we haven't studied this enough. This is the people who are negative. We haven't studied enough. Who knows? Maybe we'll find down the line that there are serious health benefit, de- health detriments, or maybe we're seeing something now and we haven't quite figured it out. So there is, I wouldn't say there's no level of concern about the health effects of e-cigarettes even used properly, but it's really not crystallized with respect to any specific and any clear evidence of that. So in, the, in light of that, uh, the FDA was able to come out and say, balancing uh, the possible possible health effects of having people use e-cigarettes as an alternative uh, to to real cigarettes, um, and even recognizing that, that this is not the greatest for people to use e-cigarettes, we think on balance it's a healthy uh, pursuit or healthy enough that they can promote it on that basis. Yeah, I, I think it's nuts. Well, it, it is funny. That, I, I'm surprised I it wasn't a bigger it, story. The the idea of the word healthy being associated with putting any kind of yeah. um, non-fresh air in your lungs well, just seems... Well, I can tell you this was a big controversy 15, 20 years ago having to do with uh, moist snuff, uh-huh. uh, snooze, and it, which is the stuff you put a pinch between your cheek and gum. And um, it is sold in Sweden as a health product. The Swedish FDA yeah. would say mm-hmm. that's healthy. And uh, the use of uh, snooze is considered one of the reasons they have much lower rate of uh, lung cancers uh, in Sweden as opposed to the U.S. because people aren't smoking, they're using snus, at least in some numbers. Hmm. Uh, and when the people who sell 
snus in the U.S., where they call it moist snuff, um, went to the FDA. And again, remember, the FDA focuses often on how you can advertise things. Went to the FDA and said, we'd like to advertise moist snuff as a uh, health product. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was quite controversial. And the FDA uh -huh. said no. Huh. But I will, but I'll guarantee you that's going to revisit gonna, it. Not only revisit, but they'll visit it for many reasons, including that the same companies that own the cigarettes own Moist Snuff Company brands. Oh, okay. So it was definitely going to come back. So I don't know. It's an interesting. It's a choice they have to make. Uh, who's to say whether the FDA is getting it right or wrong? But uh, I, that to say, I, to me, it's interesting, and uh, I'm almost surprised it didn't get more. More play. I mean, the other negative is uh, the idea that it will lure kids into using it's a product. Gateway to, yeah, it's a gateway, uh, and the use of nicotine will hook them. Yeah. Uh, so what the what the FDA is doing is they specifically approved tobacco flavored products as opposed to fruit flavored products, which would be more attractive to kids. Yeah. So that's okay. so much. Okay, so you had some totally weird story. Yeah, I don't I don't have, no, I don't have. I have some. I don't have much today, okay, because no. I've been too busy Swedish putting... Well, uh, well, first of all, you have a carryover from last week. I do. I have a follow-up, we call it. Good. That's because you're all always right. on the clock. You're always working. No. Sometimes I'm resting it while is, you're So last working. week we talked about Smutty Smith yeah, you, you and did. his lost bass. And, uh, you know, he was in a band, yeah. the Rockets. Rockets? I don't know how to Rockets say it. Rockets is what Rockets. it is. Yeah, yeah. And um, after a gig... Uh, their all their uh, band instruments, etc., was stolen out with the, their van yeah. after a gig one cold night, yeah. and uh, you know they never saw any of it again. And then Smutty's bass, and you knew it was Smutty's because it has written on the front of the bass, turned up in a pawn shop. Where was it? Jersey City, and uh, you know, um, so you know. There was a whole thing. I don't do the whole story again, but you, any, you almost have. Anyway. <laughs> I know. Anyway, Smutty wanted it. Somebody told somebody noticed it. Somebody told Smutty. Smutty wanted it back. And that's the, and the guy the who has between it. Buddy and, yeah. uh, Mr. Vidal yeah. said, uh, "Sure, but you owe me some money." Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there apparently there was outrage. Apparently, you know, outrage on his behalf to the pawnbroker, Mr. Vidal, who had. The base. People were mad at the pawnbroker. Yes, for suggesting you know that poor Smutty right. should have to pay something. There's a, there's a phrase for that. It's called, it's not their money. People are outraged. <laughs> people are very free with spending other people's money. So when they say the pawnbroker should just give it to him, even though he will be losing money, not his, not their money. Yes, so he said it was like being at a Yankees-Red Sox game. All this hate. Yeah, really. <laughs> if that's the greatest hate this guy's encountered, he, he's okay. People should wait until the end of the game to oh. see how it played out. Oh, really? So he's agreed to return it for no money. What? Yes. What? What, a, and, uh, what a wuss. I guess he has doesn't... turned it over to oh, another bandmate. Yeah. You may remember, Smutty is currently in Iceland. Yeah. Okay. Another they, reason not to get Smutty. I think I actually back. said he was in Ireland. No, you said Iceland. Iceland last time. Who knows? They're so similar. I, and um, <laughs> I was only barely listening even then, and I'm tuning out now. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, the base will remain in New York. Yeah. Okay. Because apparently the Rockettes are getting back together, oh, and they're doing a tour. The Rockettes. Yeah. And the you know Smutty always had trouble yeah. finding a base to play. So let me give you the inside scoop inside of the game. 
They're never getting back together. They're never playing again. Okay? Trust me. Uh, that's the way that's going. You think that's money's really saying, yeah, just keep it, guys. Keep it there. He's got, he's on the I'm phone. busy. He's on the phone with another porn broker even as we speak. He's, he's going to resell it. He'll make another $175, and that's where that's going. All right. So, so Andrew Jackson. You know, if anyone was worried about yeah. Smutty and his base. I was not. That's, that's the story. No. Okay. Andrew Jackson. Meanwhile, uh, a cute little article by um, Mary Beard. Okay, you know, the uh, no, classic scholar. Mary Beard, yeah. Oh, that sounds fatally familiar. Yeah, you bought me a book by her. Okay. Yeah, she's, she's fabulous. She's the one who... Um, it's beginning I mean, to come I mean, back I mean, to Yes. Okay. I, uh, I won't, uh, I won't go into all the Mary Good. Beard stories, but okay. she, uh, um, she wrote uh, a fun story, yeah. A Tomb Not Fit for a President. Yeah. And it tells the story of uh, this sarcophagus yeah. uh, that uh, somebody found in uh, like 1837, right, in Lebanon, right? And uh, it was allegedly the um, sarcophagus, you know, the box, mm-hmm. the stone box. You know, sarcophagus means flesh eating, mm-hmm. okay? So... It was uh, a dead body, isn't it? Yeah, you put okay. you put the body in a sarcophagus with the idea that it decomposes. Hence, sarcophagus, flesh eating box is what it is. A- anyway, I know you like those details. Yeah, right. uh, anyway, found in Lebanon, yeah. uh, near to another sarcophagus, which uh, had the name, uh, which was inscribed to uh, Julia Mamia, and which. Uh, people figured out, was the mother of Alexander Severus, who was a Roman emperor that ruled between 232 and 235 AD. Okay. And so Commodore, are you following this? Jesse Elliott, an American, brought the sarcophagus to the U.S. Yeah. and wrote to Andrew Jackson, yeah. who was 77 at the time, and ailing, that wouldn't this be a fitting, you know, final resting place? Because, uh, you know... With For the, him when he died? Because it's so historic, yes. And he told him the whole story. He's trying to and sell him Severus on. was not the greatest uh, Roman emperor. Yeah. Uh, it says here he came... Uh, to the throne, so to speak, at age 13. And he was mainly known for his excesses Mm -hmm. and bad behavior. And he died, he was assassinated with his mom, Mm -hmm. Julia, while on a military campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, As it turns out, um, well, let me just put it this way first. Jackson refused. Okay, good. Okay. I cannot permit my remains to be the first to be deposited in a sarcophagus meant for an emperor or a king. All right. You know, it would uh, um, be completely against the economy and simplicity of our Republican institutions. All right. All right. So he refused it. And... um, there was no use for it. It kind of sat around in the patent office for a while. Yeah. They put it out in the mall um, for a few years. 
And um, And that's it. And eventually it went into storage. In the 80s, Mary Beard says it was demoted to storage. And of course, it turns out it wasn't really the emperor's tomb anyway. He and his mom were probably killed in Germany or Britain. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's another actual, uh, and the sarcophagus, the dates on it were wrong. And there's another sarcophagus uh, uh, elsewhere that uh, actually appears to actually be his um so uh, anyway it was kind of it's just kind of a quirky interesting story (laughs) all right (laughs) in the 19th century there was this big push to try to be more european try to well that identify with those classical values and uh you know be a a major force in the world and the idea that you would uh you know, adopt all these sort of symbols and icons of these past great civilizations uh, had a lot of well, okay. sway. See, you, you remember I told you there was the rage for obelisks in yeah. in um, cemeteries. I mean, that's an that's an Egyptian slash Roman thing. We won't go into that. What do you want to say? Well, I mean, now that you told me that, the whole story makes a little more sense. Because when you tell a story that there's this and someone comes into a sarcophagus and knocks on Andrew Jackson's door and says, what do you think? I'm saying to myself, this is the stupidest, nuttiest thing I heard in my entire life. And Andrew Jackson responds, yeah, it's stupid and it's nutty. But now that I understand what you're saying now, which is you're saying that, in fact, it was a predilection to be interested in this kind of thing because it has some cachet or something like that. Well, if you go into a cemetery, yeah. and people are doing that this time of year, right, yeah. because it's a spooky time of year, right. you will see, if you go into an older cemetery, yeah. uh, like my favorite Laurel Hill, which yeah. was founded yes. in 1836, um, you will see monuments yeah. that look like Roman sarcophagi, all right? right. They're new, and but they're modeled after those forms. This, however, was an actual emperor's. Okay, all right. So, yeah. but you're saying that makes it a little more plausible. Okay. But it was it was just funny because there are those who accuse would accuse Andrew Jackson of you know somewhat of trying to be kind of a Caesar himself. Except he didn't go for this. So maybe he was sensitive to that. Yeah, he was sensitive. Okay. That would be bad for him. Yeah. Uh, that's an awkward conversation anyway. So um, here's something that's so uh, talk about awkward conversations. It turns out that people, uh, for reasons I can't quite understand, uh, have more access to so-called doctor's notes. There's an article, a report called Your Patient is Now Reading Your Note from researchers at the University of Washington and Harvard Medical School, which advise doctors to think about what they write when they make notes in a patient's charts because... Now patients are somehow getting access to these charts in various circumstances, and there's room for confusion, if not just outright bad feelings. They give you a report, Daniel. I, for the, I don't for those that. who are going to the doctor, I don't very the often doctor. Yeah. at this point, they give you some kind of report. printout yeah. of everything that's gone on. And thank goodness for that. Because how many times you come home from the doctor and you say, well, uh, I think he said this, he said that, well, blah, 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 blah. You, you know, it's all just a, a mystery. And now it's in black and white. But let me tell you the problem. The problem, according to the article, is doctors talk in a particular way about particular things. So they have here the notes from a, a colonoscopy report. There's a reference to a so-called timeout. The woman who read it was disturbed because she said, I was very well behaved during the proceeding. It's not like I needed a timeout. <laughs> and it turns out that what the doctor meant was 
the physicians who were doing the procedure took a so-called timeout to make sure everything was lined up and they were doing the procedure the right way. And they, uh, you know, it, it's a standard uh, step one takes to make sure you don't operate on the wrong leg or something like that. That's what timeout really well, means. Well, you know, and then they list all these acronyms like yeah. SOB. Well, SOB is a good one. So if you see SOB in the report, you might think that the doctor really doesn't like you, you know. Uh, or that he's not very polite. Son of whatever. But it's not, not the case. It means short of breath. And also F slash U. F U, again, red alert. You might say, oh my goodness. Uh, no, we don't, we know. Go on. I understand. It means follow up. Okay. It's next time you, you say something like that and somebody says, did you say F U? You say, no, I meant follow up. So here's one O D. If you see O D on your report. Overdose. No. It means oculus dexter, which is your uh, right eye. Well, I once read somebody's report from a doctor. Yeah. And uh, the doctor was actually referred to the patient as mildly obese. Yeah. Well, that's... Uh, that's which I thought was actually mean, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and knowing... I don't know if the doctor realized that the patient was going to read this. Yeah. But uh, even if, um, doesn't that seem mean? Yeah, well, but it might be relevant, right? It might be relevant, but uh, I could just see being the patient and getting that far and then not hearing anything else. Yeah, well, else, look, it, this is exactly what they're telling people to be aware of. The closest they have to this, apparently... I think stuff like that is more tricky than F-U and well, S-O-B. Well, it's, it's not about tricky. They just want to educate people and they think about Listen, it. Listen, I think we should have access to all that kind of stuff. Well, we should have access, but we have to read things in, in, you know, with an understanding of what these words yeah, mean. Yeah, well, I think it's silly that anybody is timeout. They really imagine the doctor I think thinks if they I, have bad If behavior. I saw SOB in my report or uh, FU, I don't know, Timson. Maybe I'm just more sensitive. You're delicate. I'm sensitive. You're delicate. All right. So sports. You want to talk about sports, I know. And, you know, who doesn't? Um, who doesn't? So uh, there was, you know, there, uh, it's funny. Because uh, there was an article in the Times about Dodgers and Giants rivalry, the baseball teams, the LA Dodgers and San Francisco Giants, because they recently played a seventh game or, no, excuse me, deciding fifth game to advance in the National League series toward the championship. And the Dodgers happened to prevail just this week, and they both had great seasons. Uh, and the Times had a nice little uh, article with blurbs about, you know, various years in which the Dodgers and Giants were competing uh, and, uh, there were critical games and legendary games. And of course, it goes back to 1951. We talked about that. The shot heard around the world. But there are other years. And these are the... I remember these. This is, I was I was in, very much plugged into the Dodger-Giant rivalry growing up being a Giant fan. And well remember what happened in 1962 and 1965. And I won't bore you with all that. But in, in, the, uh, in the article, what struck me was they also had excerpts from uh, sports articles at the time. Uh, going back to 1889. And, uh-huh. and things were written about a little differently then, mm-hmm. <laughs> it turns okay. out. So they had, uh, you know, a, a discussion, an article about the Giants prevailing in 1889 over the Times and there being a presentation. And they're saying the person who made the presentation said that in making, in making the presentation, he said that he admired skill, gameness, and honesty. And he felt certain that the New York players possessed all these elements. Uh, and it went on, you know, and it's very articulate, uh, and people seemed, you know, very sporting. 
uh, and very civilized. Uh, then you have in 1934, um, they're talking about uh, some, uh, you know, some comments that were pretty aggressive by the Bill Terry, the manager of the Giants, who said something about the Dodgers, said, quote, are the Dodgers, are the Dodgers still in the league? And there was a cry, a hue and cry, like, you know, how unsporting that was to say anything about it. So disrespectful. Uh, and uh, the sports writer said at that time, uh, no, I think this is good. Of late years, the game has become too orderly and the thoughts and actions too prosaic and rule of thumb. Uh, the, there's preponderance of gold, silver, and paper and not enough red blood and romance to it. The result is doltness for the fan and weakened business for the promoter. In other words, uh, let's uh, spice things up. Spice mm -hmm. things up. 1951, you know about the Giants when the pen of broadcast. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to read you all these, but um, even as, as recently as um, 1965, uh, Arthur Daly used to write for the Times. I remember reading reading Daly. I don't remember this, but it sounds like Daly. Um, that was 1962, I'm sorry. Uh, when the Dodgers lost to the Giants, Daly writes, The ignominious crack-up of the Dodgers reached splintering force today, leaving shattered hopes behind. They had the pennant as good as one two weeks ago and let themselves get tied by the Giants. They had the final playoff game as good as one in the final inning. They lost it, 6-4. to four. <laughs> Daly was the better writer than what you see. So that's uh, the prosaic part of baseball. The, the uh, more uh, streetwise part of sports is about sports wagering. And and I know that you were too not too excited this article because you thought this was obvious, but it's not terribly obvious. So when you were on the um, Brooklyn Bridge, you noticed the cyclists going back and forth over the bridge, yeah. the cycling path. Yeah. Well, it turns out, you know, you think about, well, that's a nice thing to do and maybe the fall air and, uh, you know, nice view, etc. And you think that it's somewhat bucolic, at least as close as things get to bucolic and in New York and Brooklyn. Uh, it turns out that a lot of those people going back and forth. This, is, this can't be a story about the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, the George Washington Bridge. Yes. <laughs> Thank goodness you're here. So <laughs> it turns out that a lot of people crossing the GW Bridge uh, during the fall, especially as you pro, as you get to 1 o'clock or 4 o'clock, which is the time the NFL games start, are going from New York to New Jersey to place bets. You cannot use... Uh, a lot of the betting services from your phone from New York. It's not legal. It won't work. You have to go across to uh, New Jersey uh, and use it there. And people want to wait until the last minute so they have all the information on injuries and the like. Right. And, you know, a lot of people don't have cars. Uh, a lot of people are looking for the cheapest, quickest way to do this. And it turns out, especially... If you're a sports better who lives in that part of Manhattan, the way to do it is get on your bicycle and uh, bicycle across the... Well, there's no toll, by the way. You bicycle across the bridge with your phone. You sit down and place your bets. And there's a whole group of people doing just that uh, every Sunday right. afternoon. Isn't that something? Yeah. Another good use for e-bikes. One of the persons here has an e-bike. Yeah. And uh, they said to him... Uh, what do you think? You know, of course, the New York uh, politicians are decrying the fact that they haven't legalized it to the point that you can do it in New York. It will just be a few months from now. Mm -hmm. uh, and this guy says, well, the truth of the matter is it's inconvenient. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I probably lost, lost a lot less money than I otherwise would have 
if I could do it from my couch. This way, at least, you know, there's a limit of the kind of betting I can do, you know, because I can only go to my, you know, get on my bike and get across New Jersey every once in a while. So it has its uh, its upside. Fascinating. Well, it's a lot. It's a big uh, shift from the days of Arthur Daly in the New York Times. But I mean, it's it's. It's obviously no, but it's not. It's not going to last because it's going to. It's going to change people. Yeah, it's going to people. It'll be legalized in New York. By, by the Super Bowl, there'll be no reason to get on your bike. No, no at reason. All. There'll be no reason to go to New Jersey. Right. This no. guy will be losing a lot of money. He'll be losing a lot of money on his couch. Right? So is it my turn? It's yeah, I think so. Yeah, you had. Uh... There's a nice obituary of Ruthie Thompson, who uh, died at the age of 111. Wow, I forgot that. And yeah. she worked for Walt Disney. Yeah. And uh, she, um, it's a very interesting story. Um, she actually, what is the story? <laughs> the story is that she uh, was not in the business. She, she had all these kind of lesser jobs, you would say, well, no, she, mundane jobs. And uh, then, you know, she had some contact with Walt Disney. And then uh, later well, on, when she was young, when she was young, their studio was on her route to school. Right, she would walk by it. And uh, at one point, Walt invited her in. Well, apparently, they had some kind of glass panels you could look through and watch right. the animators so, work. Uh, and she would, and she would press her that. nose to the glass. And then at some, uh, at another point, when he, had, he needed, um, well, years later, when she was working, she did in, some, some some shorts, some silent shorts, yeah. That involved animation and live action. Yeah. And she performed in some of those for 25 cents a shot. Right. But she blew all her money, her earnings on licorice. That's true. Apparently. As one does. Okay. Yeah. And then she runs into him later. Years, when years she's, later. He's, he and his brother are taking polo or taking riding lessons. As they said it's a lot of people were doing. It was yeah. all the rage. Right. Well, you think of, uh, you know... Um, all, you think of songs and you think of polo players in those old movies yeah. with like Fred Astaire. Yeah. And right. Ricardo Montalban. Yeah. You yeah. can, you imagine that. So, um, so anyway, she was working at a writing. This is, but this is years later. This yeah. Is, years this, later. It's an interval She's of years. gotten out of, not out of, out of high school. She yeah. graduated from high school yeah. and, uh, she is at this, uh, ranch and he and his brother come, they get reacquainted and he says, why don't you come work? Well, he me? says, he just, Leans across in a way that almost seems unbelievable, and he goes, "Ruthie, Ruthie Thompson, get over here." I can remember Daniel, her. Daniel, you're making this up. No, I'm not. No. He remembered her. He yeah, remembered. Okay. Her. And you know what she, he said anyway. He said, "Ruthie." <laughs> he said, "Come work for me." She said, "I can't draw a straight line." And he said, "Who cares? Come and work so for me." They gave her training, yeah. and it was about inking the cells from the and animators drawings right. okay so she's just basically tracing right and then she graduates to filling in colors, colors they, and... they give her the training they give her the jobs and uh she you know she does other essential jobs right. that have not not much to do with any drawing skill right. it was interesting her first job the uh, inking and painting yeah were uh, one of the few jobs that women were allowed to do Really? That women were given to do yeah. at the Disney studios. Huh. And they were very clear about it. It's in like the job descriptions. Women don't do animation. Women do these things. Mm, right. uh, and of course, now they're animators, etc. But, uh, you know, she progressed through the ranks and uh, becomes the uh, supervisor of, what was it called? Um uh, scene planner mm. of the scene planners, which is kind of making sure everything coordinates, right. puts together. Um, 
So uh, she said, I never got over being awestruck at the fact that I was there. I was a part of the wonderful thing he was doing. Yeah. He being Walt. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so she had this uh, fantastic career, yeah. even though she had no artistic skill. And she lived in 111. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was, uh, I think I pulled that. I thought that was interesting. Uh, well, but the thing that I thought was most interesting is this last article, which uh, I know you've read and I looked at also, which is, uh, well, you have the details, uh, about a performance that's based on uh, memorization. Yes, by heart. And uh, it's a one-man show at, uh, at um, BAM yeah. in Brooklyn. Brooklyn Academy of Music. And uh, starring Tiago Rodriguez. And what it involves is bringing 10 people up on stage from the audience and teaching them to memorize a Shakespearean sonnet. Right. Okay. Now, I know how this sounds. It doesn't sound terribly interesting, right? Right. Okay. And he knows how it sounds. He says, don't worry. Everything will be calm and normal. He reassured the audience. I'm also allergic to interactive theater. Right. I think that's really true. I think when I go to the theater, I don't want to be called upon to do anything. I want all the work uh, to be done by someone else, and I just sit there and enjoy or be outraged. Well, because or you know the interactions okay. can be pretty awkward. Okay. But here, are you, these people, they're going to memorize this sonnet, sonnet right. number thirty. They and say. Uh, Maya Phillips is writing the review, right? And uh, she goes to this, yeah. and she's not too enthusiastic. Hates to memorize things, right? And uh, she says it's great. Yeah. Well, Basically. She, first of all, she wasn't one of the ten. So let's. She be wasn't clear. one of the ten. That's but she, true. She's watching these people, and it's an exercise. So he goes through. She had each of these people go through the sonnet line by line, and he makes certain gestures, and gives certain makes certain points and thoughts, and they go over the lines, and they go over the lines a zillion times. A zillion times. She says the repetition is tiresome, Sorry. is boring. You would think, but uh, and, and and but and here's the other kicker: the show isn't over. Until each of the ten can recite the whole sonnet by heart. So they say it takes between 90 minutes and two hours. And two hours. You don't know when you're going to get out of the theater. The reviewer said that when she went, it was closer to 90 minutes. Thank goodness. But but she also said that, you know, she got a lot out of it. She left with a greater appreciation of the sonnet. She hears the sonnet in these various voices now. It means so much more to her, the line by line. She finds herself reading the poetry and thinking about it differently. And she makes some allusion, and, and, and which I think has to be true, that when you memorize it and when you invest that much time in it, you think it through the way you do. And in this case, she's just observing other people do it, but multiple times. You just reach a different level of understanding and feel and touch That's with true. the work of art, such that you end up having a, a facility for it and you connect with it at such a deeper level. Right. That's the trick of it, I think. Right. Right. But there's also, um, well, Rodriguez himself had an interesting story because uh, his mother was losing her sight. Right. And she decides to memorize a gran- book. Yeah, his grandmother, I think. His grandmother. His yeah. grandmother right. was losing right. her sight. She, she decides to memorize a book. Because she, she won't be able to read anymore. She right. wants to be and able to And she wanted the, right. to have that book in her, in her head. Mind. 
mind. He also um, and quotes a um, literary critic, George Steiner, saying that uh, the texts we hold in our memory become the decoration for the house of our interior. I like that. I like that. And, you know, it's kind of an evocative thought. I mean, the idea that something is so embedded or imprinted uh, in your mind such that you can call the words if you need to call the words. It means it's always there and arguably it's part of your sensibility going forward. Yeah. Even when you're not in doing the actual exercise of repeating the poem. Yeah. It's within reach. Yeah. Well, when I was in, when I was taking Latin yeah. from Miss Helen Sherman, mm-hmm. she made us memorize all kinds of poetry that she just liked. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't in Latin mm-hmm. necessarily. We we memorized a little bit of Latin, but just random poetry yeah. that she liked. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I guess I thought it was a pain in the butt, but I still carry many of those phrases with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I love it. And actually, she was right. Some of them have tremendous meaning. They don't, doesn't really um, make sense to you until maybe you're 30 or 50 or 70, but uh, it does give you access, yeah. you know, forever, which is a wonderful thing. So it is that interesting combination of making the works come more alive, yeah. you know, really yeah, um, I think it's acquainting very you with and them it's, it's just, and giving them to you. It's just amazing that this, you know, theater piece takes place. I mean, I, I can't imagine describing it to someone and saying, we'd like to do this. And, and a producer saying, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. Uh, you know, we'll, well give apparently you this. he's performed it all over. Yeah, Portugal, France, yeah. Spain, Canada. Oh. Good. Maybe uh, one day, Tampa. Maybe we can go to. BM sounds interesting. There. All right, is that all we got? That's all we have. You can take a rest now. We're all right, back, now we can go back to the death back cleanse. to the cleanse. Back to the cleanse. All right. So until next week, this is Tamsin Granger and Dan Abuhoff. Oof, I'm pooped. With, uh, with uh, Tamsin, Tamsin, Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. We don't even time read the paper. Well, really. at least you memorize. We, I hope we're back next week. You memorize the name of the podcast. Yeah, Adios. Going for you.